0: friends, let's pray together. Father, sanctify us in the truth. May we hear the truth of your word this morning. Attend to the words of the sermon by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last several weeks, we have been going through a series in which we've been looking at what we're calling The Five Trustworthy Statements of Paul. These trustworthy statements are are foundational truths or kind of nuggets of wisdom that Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus as he instructs them in their ministries that he has appointed them to. Um, these, These sayings are meant to be sources of instruction. They're meant to be sources of guidance and correction, also encouragement. Uh, for these pastors but as i've said multiple times these truths are not just for pastors only but they're meant to be passed on to the churches therefore Timothy's church or for Titus's church and therefore us today as well i believe and so this morning we actually come to the end of our series this morning we're going to look at our fifth and final trustworthy statement Now, over the last few weeks, we've been going pretty deep into each one of these statements, unpacking it and seeing all the truths that are there. But if we step back a little bit and we look at all of the trustworthy statements in order, we're going to find that there's actually a logic to the the flow of them. That what we're going to find is that uh, Paul is actually laying out the story of salvation, that what Christ has done for us and who Christ is for us. And so if you remember, our very first trustworthy saying goes like this. It says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. That was the first trustworthy saying. We said that this forms the foundation for all Christian life and all Christian ministry because it's the foundation of Christ's life and ministry. You see, the world is full of sinners, and the church is also full of sinners who have been saved by grace. And since we're all people for whom Christ died, therefore our posture should be that as Christ, ready to show love and grace and mercy. But of course, as Christ saves sinners from out of the world, what does he do? He forms us to be a people. He forms us to be a church. And in order for that church to be guided and cared for, as he's ascended and we wait for him to return, he he, he gives us Overseers. He gives us overseers to to care for his church. And so that brings us to the second trustworthy statement, which goes like this that if any man desires the task of an overseer, it's a noble task that he desires. And we said that it's noble because overseers are to care for those for whom Christ died. Overseers are to help us to grow up in the faith, to guard us from false teachings and to guide us as we mature in our walk with Christ. Overseers are to equip us as we train for godliness, which brings us to our third trustworthy saying. And it's an encouragement that training for godliness is of eternal value. Now, we have to train for godliness because we're given a gift, we're given new life, but we still have to grow up into it, right? This new life causes us to see the world differently than we've seen it before, and it causes us to interact in the world differently than what would normally come naturally. And so we have to learn to live this new life, not according to old ways, but according to the new ways of Christ. And that's not always an easy task. But the truth is, is that if we endure in that, that we have a glorious future that awaits us. And so that brought us to our fourth trustworthy saying that we looked at last week. And it goes like this. It says, that if we died with Christ, we will live with him. And if we endure, we will reign with him. And we can have confidence of this. It ends by saying, can have confidence in this because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. And so as we look at all of these, we, we see that that we're saved, we're encouraged to grow up into this salvation, and we are promised a glorious eternal life that is experienced in part in this life now. And so, in theological terms, what Paul has really been doing this whole time is giving us the story of the threefold process of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is is us being set right with God. Sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit sets us apart and causes us to grow up into Christ-likeness, and glorification is... The promise that when Christ returns and He makes all things new, that our bodies will be like the resurrected body of the resurrected Christ. And so if you follow the flow of the logic, you see that this is what we've been talking about over the last four weeks. Now, I say all of that not just by way of review. I say all of that because our fifth trustworthy saying that we're going to see this morning I think is a great summation of all that we've been studying over the last four weeks. It makes it a great end to the series because of that. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be in Titus chapter 3. So we're going to find our fifth trustworthy saying. Now this this trustworthy saying is actually fairly long. It's not as succinct as all of the other sayings, but hopefully we're going to see that it's no less clear than all of the other sayings. So follow along. We're going to start in verse 4 is where we find our fifth trustworthy saying. Titus chapter 3 verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on, those, on these things so that those who have believed may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So, let's unpack this a little bit, and to, to unpack it, let's, let's start with the context first. Titus is a person who has traveled extensively with Paul. In fact, Titus shows up periodically throughout Paul's writings, and we're told that at the beginning of this particular letter to Titus, that Paul has left him on the Isle of Crete to help organize the fledgling church that's been planted there, and so like Timothy, Titus has been instructed to appoint overseers. He's been instructed to drive out false teachers. Also, these specific false teachers, false teachers who were on the Isle of Crete, were um, were Hellenized Jewish teachers or converts. Um, who were coming into the church, and they were teaching that all Gentiles still had to follow the Mosaic laws. Well, Paul calls them out, He calls them out for their deceitfulness. He's saying that their teachings were causing divisions and leading people astray. Moreover, Paul insists that really these teachers are only in it for the money, that they're only in it to take advantage of the people of God. Well, if you would go back and read chapter 1 of Titus, you're going to see that Paul doesn't mince his words. He doesn't have a whole lot of nice things to say about these false teachers. In fact, he doesn't have a whole lot of nice things to say about the people of Crete themselves. He actually says some pretty harsh things. So in chapter 1, verse 12, he says this about the people of Crete. He says, One of their own, one uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. (laughs) Like, how do you really feel, Paul? (laughs) In the the ancient world, the the word Cretan had become synonymous with the word liar. It really had because many of the people who lived in Crete were mercenaries, they were business traders, and they were not, and they were known for their, their untrustworthiness. They were known as for their unfair dealings in business. They were selfish people who really would do anything that they could to get their way and to get what they wanted. There's also another aspect to the Isle of Crete is that Crete, according to Greek mythology, is supposed is said to be the place where Zeus, the great god of Greek mythology, that was, it was said to be his birthplace. That's where it was believed that he was born. And now, if you know your Greek mythology, you know that Zeus was not really a nice person. Right? He, didn't, he wasn't of a great character. He was a liar. He was selfish. He was a seducer. He rose to power over all the other, other gods in the pantheon by doing everything he could to get his way and exploiting everybody else. Zeus was the primary god that was worshipped on the Isle of Crete. And as we all know, we become like that which we worship. We become a reflection of the very thing that we revere. And so the culture of the people that Titus was sent to minister to were these people who were known by their lies and deceitfulness. This is the old way of of the people who were turning to Christ. And so that's why in chapter 3, beginning of chapter 3, Paul starts out, he says, Titus, you need to teach the Christians to be submissive to authority to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show courtesy to everyone. He starts out because these are the traits that are completely opposite of the way of life that the people in Crete were used to living. These were actions that would not come naturally for Christians. But you, you see, Paul doesn't just stop there. Paul goes on, and he kind of turns the mirror back on himself and on Titus and even on us because in chapter, in verse verse 3, he says, "Look, "'For we ourselves were once foolish. We ourselves were once disobedient. We were led astray by various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated and hating one another.'" All of these are characteristics of old ways of living. And they're the outworking of a life that is so completely focused on itself and that is so completely in love with itself that it seeks nothing but its own self-interest and it seeks nothing but its own self-satisfaction and its own self-fulfillment. The old way of life seeks it to the extent that it views everybody else as simply objects in its way. And Paul reminds Titus and us that that is exactly the way that we were. That's exactly the way that we were. He's not just talking about, about the people of Crete over there. He's not just talking about our neighbors or those coworkers that we can't stand or, or all of those people who might have different ideologies than us. No, no, no. He's saying we're all the same. You see, the sinful nature is a very great leveler. We all suffer from the same disease of sin and self-love and that's who we are in our unregenerate state. We're selfish and hateful people. But, he says in verse 4, he says this, when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God appeared. Notice the contrast here of the old way to the old way of life. He says, to evil and deceptive ways, goodness appeared. In Greek, that word can can also be translated as integrity. So it's the the goodness and the integrity of God appears to our evil, deceptive ways. To our hate, loving kindness appeared. The word that he uses here for loving kindness is this word um, philanthropia. It's this word where we get philanthropy, the love of humanity. To our hatred, to our natural hatred of others, God's love of humanity appeared. And the word, appeared as this idea of epiphany, this aha moment when something breaks in and helps us to see the world in completely new ways. You see, what he's saying is that God's goodness and love for humanity broke in and opened our eyes, and he did what? He saved us. He saved us from all of that. He delivered the people in in Crete from the old ways of living, and he rescued us as well from this way of life that leads to only violence and, and death. God saved us, God delivered us, not by works that we've done of ourselves, works of righteousness that we would have done. We didn't earn it. The very idea of needing to be rescued and delivered is because we are helpless to do it ourselves. See, it's always of something coming in from outside, doing what could not otherwise be done. That's what we mean by God delivers us. He goes on, he says, he does this, by He does this according to his own mercy. Again, this passage is full of contrasting ideas. I love this passage because of that. In our own self-centeredness, the very thought of showing mercy is unthinkable. But in God's sheer generosity, his mercy is overflowing. You see, in mercy, God does not give us what we deserve. In our disobedience, we deserved God's wrath. But thanks be to God, he poured that out on Christ and said, and because of that, God shows up in kindness and love and mercy. And when it does, it makes us completely new. So he's able to continue then in verse 5. He says, he does this according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now the phrase washing of regeneration is most certainly a reference to baptism. All of our church fathers and even the great reformers have understood it that way. But you see, baptism is not just about getting wet. It's always about the Holy Spirit's work in us. Water does not regenerate us. It's the Holy Spirit working through the water and through the act that renews us and gives us new life. See, we Anglicans, we do believe that, that baptism is a sacrament, and we define a sacrament as an effective sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And I think that's the point that Paul's making here, that God shows up in his mercy, and when he does, he washes away all of our filth, and he washes away all the things that separate us from him, and he pours out the Holy Spirit lavishly or generously on us. And in doing so, it makes us new. The Greek word for for regeneration here is actually a very beautiful Greek word. It's this word palingenesis, and it means rebirth or recreation. In Matthew, 19, chapter, in Matthew 19, verse 20, Jesus himself says this. Jesus himself says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the palingenesis, in the new creation, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you remember last week, we talked a lot about this idea of us ruling and reigning with Christ. And the idea is that in our baptism, when we are made new by the Holy Spirit, we are given this future glory now, here in the present. And in God's mercy, He didn't destroy us, He recreates us. And He does it by pouring out the Holy Spirit lavishly That's why he's able to continue in verse 6 and 7. He says, pours out his Holy Spirit lavishly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace. Let's stop there in the middle of that phrase. The Spirit makes us new through Jesus Christ, who justifies us by his grace. There is nothing good in us, but Jesus gives us his unmerited favor. And He justifies us. Now, to justify means to declare that something is in the right. When things are out of order and then set back right in order, it's declared justified. It's declared that it's lined up correctly. See, in our unregenerate state, friends, we were out of order. We were strangers and enemies of God. But we were not in right standing. But Christ, in His mercy and in His love, He does the work on the cross, and that reconciles us to God. So then now we can stand justified before God, in right relationship with God, based solely on Christ's merits. We who were once enemies of God are made friends, and we who were once strangers of God are now adopted as children of God. And as Paul says elsewhere, we become joint heirs with Jesus why he's able to continue in verse 7 then he continues on he goes being justified by his grace we become heirs according to the promise or the hope of eternal life now an heir is someone who is guaranteed a future inheritance an heir is someone who has a promise of something that's coming in the future and that is who god has made us to be you see through christ We are now sons and daughters of the creator of life, and so our inheritance is of life everlasting. In Ephesians, Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit is our seal and the guarantee of this future inheritance, and as such, it can never be taken away. And so this is the truth, that God has saved us from our self-loving, our broken nature, by regenerating us and renewing us by the holy spirit and by justifying us by jesus christ giving us access to the father's inheritance justification sanctification glorification that's what this trustworthy saying is all about and this is the trustworthy saying that tim that titus needed to hear it's what the church in crete needed to hear and i believe it's a truth that we constantly need to be reminded of also. See, this is a trustworthy saying because it's foundational for our identity in Christ. It's foundational for our mission in the world. It's who the the church is. You see, when God calls us, he makes us to be a people who love him. And he makes us to be a people who reflect his image to the world around us. And so this trustworthy saying, I believe, helps us to recalibrate our lives and to live out, to live from out of our new identity. You know, Peter, in 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 his letters, he says that the church is a peculiar people. He says the church is an odd people. We, and that's true. We live very odd lives according to the world around us. But friends, I want to suggest to you that, that it's this oddness that comes from what God has done for us that actually bears witness to who God is. It actually bears witness. And so I want to suggest that, that there are three aspects of this identity that this trustworthy statement holds out for us and encourages us to live into. And I want to suggest to you that it's this, that, that because of what God has done for us and the promised future glory that awaits for us, that we're to be a people of faith that we're to be a people of hope and to be a people of love. And here's what I mean by that. You see, Paul tells us over and over throughout his writings that the righteous will live by faith. He says that that our faith is placed in the truth of who Jesus is, and according to Jesus' own words, Jesus is the truth. Paul says in Galatians, I live by faith in the Son of God. The Son is the truth, and as we live as people who have faith in truth, then we reflect and we bear witness to Jesus. You see, this is important because Titus, you've got to remember, he's witnessing, he, he's calling to witness to and to equip a church that is planted in the middle of a group of people who are known as liars and deceivers. They are untruthful people. They are unfaithful people. Paul actually makes a point in the very opening sentence of the letter to Titus. he says, he says, "Titus, we have hope of eternal life because of God who never lies. He points us to a God who never lies. Last week, he pointed us to a God who is always faithful, and so we're reminded that we worship a god of, of truth. We worship a God who does not lie, and we reflect That which we we reveal, revere. Sorry. And so we as Christians are called to be a truthful and a faithful people who reflect the image of a truthful and faithful God. Truthful people are people who speak the truth. Truthful people who live truthful lives. Truthful people don't lie. We don't deceive others for personal gain. Truthful people expose lies even when it's uncomfortable but we only do that because we know that the truth sets us free. You know, it was it was the pe- the the people that Jesus reserves the harshest yet most truthful words for are those whom he calls hypocrites. Those who say that they're followers of Christ and yet live lives contrary to the ways of God. This infuriated Jesus really more than anything because hypocritical lives do not accurately reflect God. And so you see, Paul is stressing to to Timothy here that in the middle of a deceitful culture, that the church needs to be a people of integrity. Otherwise, the people of Crete would have grounds to say, well, what makes your God any different if you live exactly the way that we do? Now, friends, I'm going to assume that our neighbors and our friends in our society are not going to be worshipers of Zeus. If they are, we probably should worry. But, but friends, we still live in a culture that is more and more defined by lies and deceitfulness. We live in a culture where integrity is hard to find. We live in a culture where fake news is literally everywhere because everybody in our culture lives for self-interest, and everybody in our culture lives for and and tries to live lives of just gaining power regardless of, of who they have to step over to do it. That's the culture that we live into. And we as the church need to be faithful and truthful people. Otherwise, we have a culture that says, well, what makes your God any different if you live exactly the way that we do? Christ saved us from that to be people who live lives of truth and faithfulness. The church has also been called to Be a people of hope. The church is called to be a people of hope. Hope, hope comes up in all of the trustworthy statements in, in one way or another. You see, as Christians, we have hope in the promise of eternal life, in the promise of a new creation which, in which we will live in the fullness and the glory of the presence of God. But biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is based on a prior gift, particularly the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's that gift that secures our hope and makes our expectation both sure and certain. Biblical hope is paradoxical because we have a promise of God that he's going to make all things new, but with our physical eyes, we don't see it yet. We don't see this promised hope with our physical eyes yet, but friends, if we look with the eyes of the soul, friends, we can look at it very clearly and we can see it very clearly. And when we see it clearly, it's that vision of the blessed hope that lies ahead of us that gives us clarity to see all, that all the pleasures of this world and all the riches of this world can't even compare with the glory that awaits us. You see, God has saved us from our selfish pursuits of temporal things. And so when we hold on to this hope, we don't get sidetracked or distracted by all the things of the world, and we can show the world around us that there is so much more to live for when we live in hope. And lastly, the church is called to be a people of love. See, we are to show love, our love for God and our neighbor as we, as Paul says, stand ready to do good works and are devoted ourselves to good works. In fact, the entire passage in, in, Timothy, in, sorry, in Titus chapter 3 is bookended by a call to good works. But what are, what are good works? Good works are works that are done in love and out of love for God towards those whom God loves. You see, good works are really just works of love done for the good of others. You know, too often we think of good works as just these these random, nice things that we do while living an otherwise secular life. And by secular, I mean living as if God's existence doesn't really matter in the day to day. But that's not at all what Paul is calling us to. Good works are works that flow naturally from a life lived oriented towards God. You can't really love your neighbor as yourself if you do not truly love God. And so the call is for us to be diligent, to not let our hearts be turned back onto the old selfish self-love. Selfish people are ungenerous people. And we are called to show generous love because we are people who worship and reflect the image of God of a generous and loving God. So friends, at the end of the day, that's what all of these trustworthy statements boil down to. That's what they all boil down to. That's our mission in the world. Our mission in Charlotte is simply to be a loving reflection of a loving God. And like Titus and like Timothy, when the pressures and the confusion of the world come into the church, it, we have to be honest that it's easy to lose track of what God has called us to be And I want to suggest to you that these trustworthy statements are statements that help us to to keep focus and to recalibrate our lives and to remember that Christ came to justify sinners, Christ came to sanctify sinners, and Christ came to glorify sinners. Friends, may we always hold on to this truth because we know that God is faithful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.